Chapter 11 of the Moors in Spain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.S. Kim, Seoul, South Korea. The Moors in Spain by Stanley Lane Poole. Chapter 11. My Seed, the Challenger. It is time to glance at the opponents of the Moors in the north. We have seen how Pelayo gathered together the remnants of the Goths in the inaccessible caves and fastnesses of the Astrian mountains, how this remnant soon advanced beyond its early boundaries, and taking courage from the indifference or the disunion of the Berber tribes who were quartered on the frontiers of the Mohammedan dominions, gradually recovered most of the territory north of the Sierra de Guadarrama, and there established the kingdom of Leon and the county of Castile, while the separate kingdom of Navarre arose further east beneath the Pyrenees. We have also seen how these Christian kingdoms were in a state of almost constant war with their Moorish neighbors and might have been seriously dangerous but for the no less constant divisions which neutralized the various Christian states. So long as the kingdom of Cordoba remained strong and undivided, while the Christians of Leon, Castile, and Navarre wasted their vigor in civil wars, the Moors were fully equal to the task of preserving their dominions. But when the kingdom of Cordoba fell and Andalusia became a prey to petty dynasties, each of which thought first of its own interest, and then perhaps of the interest of the Mohammedan power at large. The Christians became more venturesome and were enabled to wring from the Moors a considerable accession of territory. During the confusion of the 11th century, when almost every city in Andalusia formed a state by itself, we have seen that the Christians scoured the land of Muslims with their victorious armies and exacted tribute from many of the most important Moorish princes. At this time, Fernando I had united the greater part of the north under his own scepter. He had combined the conflicting provinces of Leon and Castile, and incorporated the Astrias and Galicia in his dominion. Fernando was undoubtedly the most powerful monarch in all Spain at this time. He had annexed Lormego, Viseo, Coimbra, and Portugal, and took tribute from the kings of Zaragoza, Toledo, Badajoz, and Seville, and though his imprudent division of his dominions among his three sons and two daughters involved the north in a series of civil wars after his death, Alfonso VI, the valiant, eventually succeeded in cementing the scattered fragments together again, and henceforward the progress of the Christian power in Spain was inevitable. It was only the immense bribes of the Mohammedan princes who paid blackmail to a fabulous amount to buy off Christians and the armies of the Almoravides in the background that prevented the entire reconquest of Andalusia by the Christians at this period of Moorish weakness. As it was, the Moors were in no sense their own masters. 
they were harassed between the dread of Alfonso and the scarcely less alarming supremacy of their Almoravide ally, and in the end they had to succumb to the latter. At this time we find the Christians interfering most of the political affairs of the Mohammedan states, Christian armies overrunning their territories and demanding heavy tributes for their goodwill, and so complicated became the alliances between the two parties that many Christian mercenaries were to be found in the armies of the Moors, vigorously assisting in campaigns of devastation and sacrilege through Christian provinces, while Moors were ready to join the Castilians against their fellow Muslims. It was, in short, a time of adventurers, of paid mercenaries, of men who fought for personal interest and profit, instead of for king and country. We should make a great mistake if we regarded the warriors of Leon and Castile as anything approaching an ideal of knightly honor and chivalry, and a still greater error would be to imagine them polished, cultivated gentlemen. The Christians of the north formed the most striking possible contrast to their Moorish rivals. The Arabs, rough tribesmen as they had been at their first arrival, had softened by contact with the Andalusians and by their own natural disposition to enjoyment and luxury, into a highly civilized people, delighting in poetry and elegant literature, devoted to the pursuit of learning, and, above all, determined to enjoy life to the utmost. Their intellectual tastes were unusually fine and delicate. They were moved by the emotions which could only be felt by men of taste and savoir vivre. They were romantic, imaginative, poetical, speculative, and would bestow on a well-turned epigram what would have sufficed to pay a regiment of soldiers. The most tyrannical and bloodthirsty among their despot was held in some contempt if he were not also something of a poet, or at least instinctively appreciative of polished wit and courtly eloquence. Music, oratory, as well as the severe pursuit of science, seemed to come naturally to this brilliant people, and they possessed in a high degree that quality of critical perception and delicate appreciation of the finer shades of expression which, in the present day, we associate with the French nation. The Christians of the North were as unlike this as can well be conceived. Though descended from an older kingdom, the northern states had most of the qualities of new nations. They were rude and uncultivated, Few of their princes possessed the elements of what could be called education, and they were too poor to indulge in the refined luxuries of the Moorish sovereigns. The Christians were simply rough warriors, as fond of fighting as even their Muslim antagonists, but even better prepared by their hard and necessarily self-denying lives for the endurance of long campaigns and the performance of desperate deeds of valor. They had no idea of the high standard of chivalrous conduct which poets afterwards infused into their histories. They were men of the sort, and little besides. Their poverty made them any man's servants. They sold their valor to him who paid them best. 
they fought to get a livelihood. We have seen how the great minister Almanzor won his victories against Leon and took Santiago with the aid of a large contingent of the Leonese themselves, who perceived clearly enough on which side their fortunes were to be made. The history of the 11th century in Spain is full of such examples of the employment of Christian chevaliers on the street by Moorish princes, but of this none has ever attained such celebrity as the Cid, the national hero of Spain. The Cid's proper name was Rodrigo Diaz of Bivar, and he was called the Cid because that was the title which his Moorish followers naturally gave him. A Mohammedan gentleman is still addressed in Egypt and elsewhere by the title of Seed, which is a corruption of the word Sayyid, meaning master. The Seed, or master, was also styled Compeador, which signifies champion or, more accurately, challenger, because his exceeding prowess made him the natural challenger in those single combats which in Spanish wars commonly preceded a general engagement between two armies. A famous warrior would advance before the ranks as Goliath of Gaz stood forth before the armies of Israel and challenged the opposing forces to send him out a champion, and none was more renowned for his triumphs in this manner of warfare than Rodrigo Diaz, Mio Cid el Campeador as the old chronicler affectionately calls him. It is not easy to decide how much of the splendid history which had gathered round the exploits of the Cid is true. The Christian chroniclers stopped at nothing when they began to describe their national hero, and the enthusiasm that did not shrink from relating how the king of Leon seized Paris and conquered the French, Germans, Italians, and even the Persians can be trusted still less when it sounds the glories of the beloved Cid. The Spanish ballads surround their hero with the saintly aureole of all the virtues and forget that many of these virtues would not have been understood or appreciated by the Cid himself or his contemporaries in Castile. The Arabic writers are generally more trustworthy but their judgment can hardly have been unbiased when they spoke of a Christian who worked such a misery to the Muslims of Valencia as did the famous Campeador. Yet even they called him a miracle of God. In this critical age, we are frequently obliged to abandon with regret the most charming traditions of our childhood's histories, and the seed has not been spared. A special book has been written by an eminent Orientalist to prove that the redoubtable challenger was by no means the hero he was supposed to be, that he was treacherous and cruel, a violator of altars, and a breaker of his own good faith. Professor Dozier maintains that the romantic history of the Cid is a tissue of inventions, and he has written on account of the real Cid, to counteract these misleading narratives. He founds his criticism mainly on the Arabic historians, in whom, despite their national and religious bias, he places as blind a reliance as less learned people have placed in the chronicle of the Cid. 
Yet it is surprising how trifling are the differences that can be detected between his real seed and that romantic chronicle of the seed, the substance of which was compiled by Alfonso the Learned only half a century after Seed's death, and which Robert Southey translated into English in 1805 with such skill and charm of style that his version has ever since been almost as much a classic as the original. Everyone can separate for himself the obviously legendary incidents in the delightful old chronicle without any assistance from the Arabic historians who deal cheaply with one period alone of the Seed's career and the best popular account of the hero in discriminating hands and with due allowance is still Saudi's fascinating chronicle. The seed of the chronicle is not at all the same as the seed of the romances, and while we cheerfully abandon the latter immaculate personage, we may still believe in the former. Of course, our seed had his faults, and was guilty of not a few thoroughly indefensible acts. He was no very orthodox champion of the faith, for he fought as well for the Moors as for the Christians, and would as dispassionately rob a church as a mosque. But all this is clear enough to anyone who reads the chronicle, and it does not make the seed anything but what he always was, a hero of the rude days of yore. If we are to limit our definition of heroism to a character's that display all Christian virtues, long-suffering, gentleness, and pity, we shall have to dismiss most of our old friends. Achilles was not a very gentle or compassionate when he dragged the body of Hector round the walls of Troy, but Achilles is the hero of the Iliad. Nine out of the ten of the heroes of antiquity committed a host of acts which we moderns, with our superfine sensibilities, cruel, ungenerous, even dastardly. It is a pure perversion of history to apply latter-day codes of morality to the heroes of bygone ages. Let us admit that they are not all cold, and then let us delight in their great deeds, the mighty swing of their sword arms, the crushing shock of their onset, their tall stature and flashing eyes as they ride to meet their foes. We do not expect them to be philosophers or strict advocates of the theories of political economy. We are quite satisfied with them as they are, heroes, brave, gallant leaders of men. The Cid was a real hero to the Spaniard, first because he fought so magnificently and that used once to be title enough to reverence, secondly because, like the mythical Bernardo del Carpio, and the real Fernando González, he was the champion of Castile, and had bearded the king of Leon, and thus represented the immemorial jealousy which the Castilians entertained for the powerful neighbors who absorbed their province. And thirdly, because the minstrels forgot his long alliance with the Moors, or contrived to give it a disinterested aspect, and remembered him only as the great champion of the Christian people against the infidels. But the very cause which specially commended him to the Castilians, his insubordination to King Alfonso, 
made him a less perfect hero to the writer of the Chronica General, from which the Chronicle of the Cid was extracted. That writer or compiler, Alfonso the Learned, King of Leon and Castile, could not approve the haughty independence of the Cid toward his own forerunner, the sixth Alfonso. Hence, in the southeast version of the Chronicle, which is enriched with many extracts from the poem of the Cid and other sources, we have a check upon the excessive adulation of the ballads and romances. There is no lack of details in the work which are anything but creditable to the Cid, but nevertheless the true heroic character with all its faults and limitations is well sustained, and the record forms a wonderfully interesting picture of a stirring time and the greatest figure among the Spanish chevaliers. The story of the Cid would fill a volume by itself. All we can attempt here is to extract a few of the most striking passages of the chronicle. The use of the hero is to a large extent merged in myth. He first comes into historical documents in 1064, when, though scarcely more than twenty, he had already won his title of challenger by a triumphant single combat with the Knight of Navarre, and was soon afterwards appointed commander-in-chief of the forces of Castile. He helped Sancho of Castile to overcome his brother Alfonso of Leon by a surprise which savored strongly of treachery, but which passed for good strategy in those rough and ready times. After the murder of Sancho by Beido under the walls of Zamora, the Cid passed into the service of his successor, the very Alfonso, whom he had before driven into exile. The king at first welcomed the invincible knights of Castile to his court and married him to his own cousin, but jealous rivals poisoned his mind already filled with the memory of past wrongs against Rodrigo, or Ruiz Diaz, as he is styled in the chronicle, and in 1081, the seed was banished from his dominions. The chronicle must tell the story of his farewells. And the seed sent for all his friends and his kinsmen and vassals, and told them how King Don Alfonso had banished him from the land, and asked of them who would follow him into banishment, and who would remain at home. Then Alva Fanez, who was his cousin German, came forward and said, Seed, we will all go with you through desert and through peopled country and never fail you in your service will we spend our mules and horses our wealth and our garments and ever while we live be unto you loyal friends and vessels and they all confirmed what alva fanez had said and the seed thanked them for their love and said that there might come a time in which he should garden them and as he was about to depart, he looked back upon his own home, and when he saw his hall deserted, the household chest unfastened, the doors open, no clocks hanging up, no seat in the porch, no hawks upon the perches, the tears came into his eyes, and he said, My enemies have done this. God be praised for all things. And he turned toward the east and knelt and said, Holy Mary Mother, and all saints, 
prayed to God for me that he may give me strength to destroy all the pagans and to win enough from them to requite my friends therewith and all those who follow and help me. Then he called for Alba Fanez and said unto him, Cousin, the poor have no parts in the wrong which the king hath done us. See now that no wrong be done unto them along our road. And he called for his horse. And then an old woman who was standing at her door said, Go in a lucky minute, and make spoil of whatever you wish. And with this proverb he rode on, saying, Friends, by God's good pleasure we shall return to Castile with great honor and great gain. And as they went out from Bivar, they had a crow on their right hand, and when they came to Burgos, they had a crow on the left. My Cid Ruidiez entered Burgos, having sixty streamers in his company, and men and women went forth to see him, and the men of Burgos and the women of Burgos were at their windows, weeping. So great was their sorrow, and they said with one accord, Dios, how good a vassal, if he had but a good lord, must be Scano, and willingly would have each bade him come in, but no one dared to do so. For King Don Alfonso, in his anger, had sent letters to Burgos, saying that no man should give the seed a lodging, and that whosoever disobeyed should lose all that he had, and moreover the eyes in his head. Great sorrow had these Christian folks at this, and they hid themselves when he came near them, because they did not dare speak to him, and my seed went to his posada, and when he came to the door, he found it fastened for fear of the king. And his people called out with a loud voice, but they within made no answer. And the seed rode up to the door, and took his foot out of the stirrup, and gave it a kick, but door did not open with it, for it was well secured. A little girl of nine years old then came out of one of the houses, and said unto him, O seed, the king hath forbidden us to receive you. We dare not open our doors to you, for we should lose our houses and all that we have, and the eyes in our head. Seed, our evil would not help you, but God and all his saints be with you. And when she had said this, she returned into the house. And when the seed knew what the king had done, he turned away from the door and rode up to St. Mary's, and there he alighted and knelt down, and prayed with all his heart, and then he mounted again and rode out of the town, and pitched his tent near Alanzon upon the Glera, that is to say, upon the sands. My seed Ruidiez, who in a happy hour first got on his sword, took up his lodging upon the sands, because there was none who would receive him within his door. He had a good company around him, and there he lodged as if he had been among the mountains. The cocks were crowing amain, and the day began to break when the good compadre reached San Pedro. The abbot Don Cisebuto was saying Martins and Doña Jimena, the seed's wife, and five of her ladies of good lineage were with him, praying to God and St. Peter to help my seed. And when he called at the gate, and they knew his voice. Dios, what a joyful man was the abbot Don Cisebuto. 
Out into the courtyard they went with torches and with tapers, and the abbot gave thanks to God that he now beheld the face of my seed. And the seed told him all that had befallen him, and how he was a banished man, and he gave him fifty marks for himself, and a hundred for Doña Jimena and her children. Abbot, said he, I leave two little girls behind me, whom I commend to your care. Take you care of them and of my wife and of her ladies. When this money be gone, if it be not enough, supply them abundantly. For every mark which you expend upon them, I will give you the monastery for. And the abbot promised to do this with the right good will. Then Doña Jimena came up, and her daughters with her, each of them borne in arms, and she knelt down on both her knees before her husband, weeping bitterly, and she would have kissed his hand, and she said to him, Lo, now you are banished from the land by mischief-making men, and here am I with your daughters, who are little ones and of tender years, and we and you must be parted even in your lifetime. For the love of St. Mary, tell me now what we shall do. And the seed took the children in his arms, and held them to his heart, and wept, for he dearly loved them. Please God and St. Mary, said he, I shall yet live to give these my daughters in marriage with my own hands, and to do you service yet, my honored wife, whom I have ever loved, even as my own soul. A great feast did they make that day on the monastery for the good compadre, and the bells of San Pedro rung merrily. Meantime the tidings had gone through Castile, how my seed was banished from the land, and great was the sorrow of the people. Some left their houses to follow him, others forsook their honorable offices which they held, and that day a hundred and fifteen knights assembled at the bridge of Alanzon, all in quest of my seed, and there Martin Antolines joined them, and they rode on together to San Pedro's. And when he of Viva knew what a good company was coming to join him, he rejoiced in his own strength, and rode out to meet them, and greeted them full courteously, and they kissed his hand, and he said to them, I pray to God that I may one day requite ye well, because ye have forsaken your houses and your heritages for my sake, and I trust that I shall pay ye twofold. Six days of term allotted were now gone, and three only remained. If, after that time, he should be found within king's dominions, neither for gold nor for silver could he then escape. That day they feasted together, and when it was evening, the seed distributed among them all that he had, giving to each man according to what he was, and he told them that they must meet at mass after martins, and depart at that early hour. Before the cock crew they were ready, and the abbot said the mass of Holy Trinity, and when it was done they left the church and went to horse. And my seed embraced Doña Jimena and his daughters, and blessed them, and the parting between them was like separating the nail from the kick flesh, and he wept and continued to look round after them. Then Alba Fanez came up to him and said, Where is your courage, my seed? In a good hour were you born of woman. Think of our road now. These sorrows will yet turn into joy.
The Cid offered his services to the Moorish king of Zaragoza, the most powerful of the northern Muslim princes, and they were joyfully accepted. At the head of his own followers, who were the more devoted to him since they lived by the booty he procured them, he made a raid through Aragon, and so rapid was his riding that he harried a vast tract of country in five days and was off before the Christians could sound the alarm. He led the Moors against the Count of Barcelona, won a signal victory, and made the Count his ally. How the Cid and his merry men triumphed in the battlefield, let the chronicle again relate. Pero Bermudez could not bear this, but holding the banner in his hand, he cried, God help you, Cid Campeador, I shall put your banner in the middle of that main body, and you who are bound to stand by it, I shall see how you will succor it. And he began to break forward, and the Campeador called unto him to stop, as he loved him, but Pero Bermudez replied he would stop for nothing, and away he spurred and carried his banner into the middle of the great body of the Moors. And the Moors fell upon him that they might win the banner, and beset him on all sides, giving him many and great blows to beat him down. Nevertheless, his arms were proof, and they could not pierce them, neither could they beat him down, nor force the banner from him, for he was a right brave man, and a strong and good horseman, and of great heart. And when the Cid saw him thus beset, he called to his people to move on and help him. Then placed they their shield before their hearts, and lowered their lances with the streamers thereon, and bending forward rode on. Three hundred lances were they, each with his pendants, and every man at the first charge slew his moor. Smite them, knights, for the love of charity, cried the compeador. I am Louis Diaz, the seed of Bivar. Many a shield were pierced that day, and many a false corslet was broken, and many a white streamer died with blood, and many a horse left without a rider. The misbelievers called on Mohammed, and the Christians on Santiago, and the noise of the tambours and the trumpets were so great that none could hear his neighbor. And my seed and his company succored Pero Bermudez, and they rode through the host of Moors, slaying as they went, and they rode back again in like manner. Thirteen hundred did they kill in disguise. If you would know who they were, who were the good men of that day, it behoves me to tell you, for though they are departed, it is not fitting that the names of those who have done well should die, nor would they who have done well themselves, or who hope so to do, think it right. For good men would not be so bound to do well if their good feats should be kept silent. There was my seat, the good man in battle, who fought well upon his gilt saddle, and Alva Fanez Minaya, and Martin Antolines the Burgales of Prowess, and Munio Gustios, and Martin Munoz, who held Montemayor, and Alva Alvarez, and Alva Salvadores, and Galin Garcia, the good one of Aragon, and Feliz Munoz, the nephew of the Campeador. Wherever my seed went, the Moors made a path before him, for he smote them down without mercy, and while the battle still continued, 
the Moors killed the horse of Alva Fañez, and his lance was broken, and he fought bravely with his sword afoot. And my seed, seeing him, came up to an alguazil, who rode upon a good horse, and smote him with his sword under the right arm, so that he cut him through and through, and he gave the horse to Alva Fañez, saying, Mount Minaya, for you are my right hand. The great feat of the Cid's career was the conquest of Valencia. By force of political troubles, he came to occupy the position of protector of the Moorish king of Valencia in the name of the king of Saragossa. His first entry was peaceful and unopposed. Then the Cid went to Valencia, and King Yahya received him full honorably, and made a covenant with him to give him weekly four thousand maravedis of silver, and he on his part was to reduce the castles to his obedience, so that they should pay the same rents unto him as had been paid unto the former king of Valencia, and that Cid should protect him against all men, Moors or Christians, and should have his home in Valencia, and bring all his booty there to be sold, and that he should have his granaries there. This covenant was confirmed in writing so that they were secure on one side and on the other. And my seed sent to all those who held the castles, commanding them to pay their rents to the king of Valencia, as they had done aforetime, and they all obeyed his command, everyone striving to have his love. From the vantage point of Valencia, the seed carried his triumphant arms against the neighboring kingdoms. He warred against Denia and against Hativa, and abode there all the winter, doing great hurt, insomuch that there did not remain a wall standing from Orihuela and Hativa, for he laid everything waste, and all his booty and his prisoners he sold in Valencia. On one of these expeditions, however, he lost his capital for a while. Alfonso, in 1089, has received him back to favor, given him castles and decreed that all the seeds conquest should be his own property. In other words, he recognized the seed as an almost independent prince. Almost immediately, however, the king became again suspicious of his powerful vassal and seized the opportunity of seed's absence in the north to besiege his peculiar possession, the city of Valencia. When the campeador heard this, he was very wroth, and, by way of retaliation, carried fire and sword through Alfonso's district of Najera and Calahora, and raised Logroño to the ground, and, in the words of the old Latin jester, with terrible and impious despoilment, he wasted and harried the land, and stripped it bare of its riches and seized them for himself. Alfonso hastily abandoned the siege of Valencia and returned to defend his own country. But the Cid, having effected his purpose, came back another way and found the gates of Valencia closed against him. Then began that memorable siege of nine months, during which the people of Valencia suffered agonies of hunger and thirst, whilst the Cid maintained his remorseless leaguer round the walls. The besieged were reduced to the agonies of starvation, and those who rushed out or were thrust forth as useless burdens by the townspeople were massacred or sold into slavery by the seed soldiers.
It is even said by the Moorish historians that the seed had many of them burnt alive. The chronicle pathetically records, now there was no food to be bought in the city, and the people were in the waves of death, men were seen to drop and die in the streets, thus wrote the poet of the devoted city. Valencia, Valencia, trouble is come upon thee, and thou art in the hour of death, and if peradventure thou shouldst escape, it will be a wonder to all that shall behold thee. But if ever God hath shown mercy to any place, let him be pleased to show mercy unto thee, for thy name was joy, and all the Moors delighted in thee, and took their pleasure in thee. And if it should please God utterly to destroy thee now, it will be for thy great sins, and for the great presumption which thou hast in thy pride. The four cornerstones whereon thou art founded would meet together and lament for thee if they could. Thy strong wall which is founded upon these four stones trembles and is about to fall and hath lost all its strength. Thy lofty and fair towers which are seen from far and rejoice the heart of the people, little by little they are falling. Thy white battlements which glittered afar off have lost their truth with which they shone like the sunbeams. Thy noble river Guadalavia, with all the other waters with which thou hast been served so well, have left their channel, and now they run where they should not. Thy watercourses, which were so clear, and of such great profit to so many, for lack of cleansing, are choked with mud. Thy pleasant gardens, which were round about thee, the ravenous wolf hath known at the roots, and the trees can yield thee no fruits. Thy goodly fields, with so many and such fair flowers, wherein thy people were wont to take their pastime, are all dried up. Thy noble harbor, which was so great honor to thee, is deprived of all the nobleness which was wont to come into it for thy sake. The fire had laid waste the lands of which thou were called mistress, and the great smoke thereof reached thee. There is no medicine for thy sore infirmity, and the physicians despair of healing thee. Valencia, Valencia, from a broken heart have I uttered all these things which I have said of thee. And this grief would I keep unto myself, that none should know it, if it were not needful that it should be known to all. At last, in June 1094, Valencia surrendered, and the seat stood once more upon her towers and ramparts. He made hard conditions with the people, many of whom he sent away to the suburbs to make rooms for his Castilians. But if he was harsh and not quite honest in his dealings with the vanquished, his triumph was stained by no wholesale butchery. The people were sometimes ruined, but their lives, except their leaders, were safe. The Cid had now attained the summit of his power. He sent for his wife and daughters from the abbey and established himself permanently as king of Valencia and suzerain of country round about. The king of Aragon besought his alliance. He exacted heavy tribute from his neighbors. His revenue included 120,000 pieces of gold yearly from Valencia, 
10,000 from the Lord of Albaracin, 10,000 from the heir of Alpuente, 6,000 from the master of Murviedro, and so forth. He dreamed of reconquering all Andalusia. One Roderick, he said, lost Spain, another shall recover it. When the Almoravides came against him, he put them to rout. The chronicle tells the story. Day is gone and night is come. At Cockcrow they all assembled together in the church of San Pedro, and the bishop Don Hieronimo sang mass, and they were shriven and assaulted and houseled. Great was the absolution which the bishop gave them. He who shall die, said he, fighting face forward, I will take his sins, and God shall have his soul. Then said he, A boon, see Don Rodrigo, I have sung mass to you this morning. Let me have the giving the first wounds in this battle, and the seed granted him this boon in the name of God. Then, being all ready, they went out through the gate, which is called the gate of the snake, for the greatest power of the Moors on that side, leaving good men to guard the gates. Alva Fanez and his company were already gone forth, and had laid their ambush. Four thousand, lacking thirty, were they who went out with by seed, with a good will to attack fifty thousand. They went through all the narrow places and bad passes, and, leaving the ambush on the left, struck to the right hand, so as to get the moors between them and the town. And the Cid put his battles in good array, and bade Pero Bermudez bear his banner. When the moors saw this, they were greatly amazed, and they harnessed themselves in great haste, and came out of their tents. Then Cid bade his banner move on, and the bishop Don Hieronimo pricked forward with his company, and laid on with such a guise, that the host was soon mingled together. Then might you have seen many a horse running about the field with the saddle under his belly, and many a horseman in evil plight upon the ground. Great was the smiting and slaying in short time, but by reason that the Moors were so great a number, they bore hard upon the Christians, and were in the hour of overcoming them. And the seed began to encourage them with a loud voice, shouting God and Santiago. And Alva Fanez at this time issued out from ambush, and fell upon them, on the side which was nearest the sea, and the Moors thought that a great power had arrived to the seed's succor, and they were dismayed and began to fly. And the seed and his people pursued, punishing them in a bad way. If we should wish to tell you how everyone behaved himself in this battle, it is a thing which could not be done, for all did so well that no man can relate their feats. And the seed Ruidiez did so well, and made such mortality among the moors, that the blood ran from his wrist to his elbow. Great pleasure had he in his horse, Bavieca, that day, to find himself so well mounted, and in this pursuit he came up to King Yusuf and smote him three times, but the king escaped from under the sword, for the horse of the seed passed on in his course, and when he turned, the king being on a fleet horse was far off, so that he might not be overtaken, and he got into a castle called Guerra, for so far did the Christians pursue them, smiting and slaying, and giving them no respite, so that 
hardly 15,000 escaped of 50 that they were. But the fortune of war is fickle. The troops of the Cid were defeated at last by the invaders, and the campeador died of grief in July 1099. They took his body and embalmed it and kept vigil by his side. Then, in the legend of the poets, they did as the Cid had bidden them. They set him upon his good horse Bavieca and fastened the saddle well, so that he sat erect with his countenance unchanged, his eyes bright and fair, and his beard flowing down his breast, and his trust sword Tisona in his hand. No one would have known that he was dead, and they led Bavieca out of the city. Pero Bermudez in front with the banner of the seat, and five hundred knights to guard it, and Doña Jimena behind with a company and escort. Slowly they cut a path through the besiegers and took the road to Castile, leaving the Moors in sore amazement at their strange departure, for they did not know that the seed was dead. But the body of the hero was set in an ivory chair beside the great altar of San Pedro de Cardena, under a canopy whereon were blazoned the arms of Castile and Leon, Navarre and Aragon, and of the seed Campeador. Ten years the seed sat upright beside the altar, his face still noble and comely, when the signs of death at last began to appear. So they buried him before the altar, where Doña Jimena already lay, and they left him in the vault, still upright in the ivory chair, still in his princely robes with the sword Tizona in his hand, still the great campeador whose dinted shield and banner of victory hung desolate over his tomb. End of chapter 11